podcast for women of color, where we talk about our stories and the issues we face each and every day. And I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson. And I had to hurry up and hit record because my guests and I were already cutting up before I even hit the record button. I'm excited to have her back with me today. This is Elizabeth Liba. Hey, girl, how are you? I'm good, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here and I appreciate you. It is not a problem. I'm excited to have you. And so I will link to your original episode in the show notes. So people who haven't had a chance to listen can go back and do that. So we're going to do a quick recap of um, what drew me to you in the first place. Tell them a little bit about what happened to you as a student at the University of Florida, and then we'll fast forward to where we are today. Yeah, the the incident that probably brought my story to na- somewhat of a national attention was the fact that I had posted on LinkedIn that I was falsely arrested at 19 when I was a student at University of Florida. And it actually, uh, the post got picked up by somebody that was um, an editor at CNN and they asked me to write an op-ed piece for CNN. It actually went viral on CNN's website and got 2 million hits and ended up being one of the 50 op-ed pieces that told the story of 2020. So that was kind of the introduction from most people to what my story was, which was when I was uh, 19 at University of Florida I actually went into a pharmacy, an Eckert pharmacy, and went to drop off some film. So, you know, this was back in the day. And it looks like, uh, it, it looked like when I went into the store, I just went, dropped my film off, walked straight out. And then the alarm, the, the store alarm went off. Uh, they asked me uh, to come back to the, the register, which... I did. I did not leave the store and asked me if I had purchased something, which I had not. I had just dropped my film off and wanted to head back to campus. And the the young man at the cash register just asked, well, can we just search your bag just to see? So I was sure I didn't buy anything. So I opened it up and there was a pack of batteries in there, which I was like, mm, that must have been, I bought that a couple of days ago. So that probably just was still in there, but I didn't even go anywhere near the batteries. I just dropped my film off and walked straight back out. I didn't even browse because it was early on a Sunday morning. I just wanted to get back to campus and I could probably get back in bed and go to sleep. <laughs> so basically what happened at that point was they called the manager. Manager took me in the office to you know figure out what was going on. And before I knew it, she wanted me to sign a no trespass because she was asking for the receipt and I really couldn't find it. I knew I had it somewhere, but I couldn't find it in my bag. So I started thinking like, where is the receipt? I know I probably, I would have kept it because I always kept receipts, but I couldn't figure out where it was. And because I wouldn't sign the no trespass, which was just basically an admission of guilt, which says you stole this item in our store. We observed that you, you know, shoplifted, but what we'll do is we'll just come to an agreement. You leave and don't come back and we won't press charges. And my thought process was, well, by me signing this, I've already admitted that I stole this and I did and I bought it. So that's kind of like not fair. Like in my 19 year old mind, I'm just like, yeah, I could sign this. And then, but that means I can never come in here. I don't have a car. Where am I supposed to go if I need to go somewhere? Like, the, you know, you're talking about Gainesville. It wasn't like Uber was around. It wasn't, it wasn't something where I had access to, you know, another you know, pharmacy that was within walking distance. So it just all seemed very unfair to me. So I would not sign it. And she said, well, if you don't, that means I'm going to have to call the police. 
So I said, well, you'll have to because I'm not going to sign something that's a lie. So that's basically what ended up happening. Police showed up, asked me would I sign it. I told them I would not because I did not steal the batteries. Asked me where was the receipt. I said, I've been looking for it. I can't find it. I don't know. At this point, I started to get frantic. I'm like, maybe it's in the dorm. Maybe I left it at my... So I was like, I almost wanted to ask the police, can you take me to the dorm and just wait outside my dorm right. room and, <laughs> and let me find it? I was like, I was being so desperate. I was like, well, could y'all look at the cameras? And then you'll see that I didn't even go anywhere to the batteries. I was trying to negotiate with them. And it was just like, they were just like, no, unless you can give us a receipt, then you have to go to jail now because like you're not complying with what we're asking you to do. So I just told the officer then go ahead and take me to jail. I was really calm in that moment because it was like, there was a sense of if I was outraged and like flipped over the table, like, no, you know, you're violating my rights. I knew it would make them more angry. So I just kind of just submitted to the idea, just kind of resigned myself to the idea I was going to go to jail. It took me to uh, the, the, the city jail and I just um, got booked, charged with petty theft uh, took mugshot, fingerprint, uh, took my stuff, searched, pat down the whole everything, looked to how many t- tattoos I had, like everything that happens when you get processed, basically, because I had to post bond uh, for, you know, it's a, it's a misdemeanor uh, offense, uh, petty theft, shoplifting. So I had to post bond, called my mom. Uh, and she was in Fort Lauderdale. I'm in Gainesville, which is like five hours away and told her, you know, this is my one phone call. So you got to listen really carefully. This is what's happening. And I explained it to her. And she was actually really calm. She's a, she's a nurse. So she was a nurse until she retired. So she just calmly listened, wrote down what she needed to do. told her how much the bomb was, where she needed to go, what the directions were. I remember afterwards, she was just like, she was a wreck once she hung up the phone, but she knew in that moment she couldn't be because she had to know what she needed to do so that I could post um, bond, which she posted $700 bond in Fort Lauderdale. They had to wait for it to post in Gainesville and that clearing that bond usually takes a few hours. So that gave her time to drive up to Gainesville to come get me. I didn't know anyone that had a car on campus. So my mom was the one that came to the jail. There was no Uber back then. I mean, it didn't have money for a taxi or anything else. So I had to wait for her uh, while I was in holding. They put me in a holding cell because they knew I was bonding out. So they said, well, there's no point in us putting you in like, an actual real cell, giving you, taking your clothes, giving you clothing, giving you flip flops and everything else, because we know that you're going to bond out. But if it gets too late, we will have to do that. And you have to go in the back for the night. So they were like, hopefully your mom went to the bail's bondsman immediately because if it gets too late, then you'll have to stay overnight. So I just waited in holding. And then finally, uh, right, not too long before she got there, I bonded out. They were like, okay, your bond's posted. And I waited in the lobby of the jail until my mom pulled up and then she uh, came and got me. So that was basically, I think my first reality check about the unfairness of racial profile and the fact that when my mom pulled up, she was obviously relieved and she wanted to get me safely back to the dorm and everything else. But a part of her was questioning like, well, if you would have signed it, would they just have let you go? And I was like, well, yeah, pretty much. And she was like, well, you could have just signed it. Like, what's the big deal? Whatever. Who cares? And I'm like, but it's not the like it's the principle of it. You know, it's just like I know I didn't. And then I started crying because I was just so mad because it was just like, yeah, I could have. 
but it, they should not have done what they did. And it just seemed really unfair, the whole thing. And I was tired and it was just, I was cold from being in there all day. It was just everything compounded. And I was just like looking through my book bag again while my mom was driving back to campus. And I looked inside one folder and the receipt was tucked in the very bottom of that folder pocket. And I just remember just being like, just hysterical crying. Cause I'm like, that it was here the whole time. They took my book bag and it was in the book bag. So I, the next day I went on campus, went to uh, legal affairs. They, they recommended a lawyer in town. And when I went to him, took the receipt, he made a copy and he's like, we're going to go ahead and it's a state attorney office. They'll drop the charges immediately. Cause it's like a $2 and 49 cent pack of batteries. Why would they even arrest you for that? Like he was questioning. And this was a older middle-aged white man who'd been practicing law in Gainesville for probably a decade. And he was just like, or probably even longer than that. And he was just like, this makes absolutely no sense. I've never even seen anything else before. Because usually what they would do in a case like this is they'd probably just take the batteries away and just tell you just go home or whatever. And I was like, I would have took that. That I would have took, but I wasn't going to sign to say I stole them. So they, uh, he said, we're going to go ahead and submit the copy of the receipt to the state attorney, get the charges dropped. And he said, I got another idea because he, he saw that I was very... I guess there's was a militant or radical in the idea that I did not feel it was fair and I was not going to sign that no trespass under any circumstances. And he said, what we should probably do, because we know that what they did was wrong. We know this is literally profiling at, at its core because they would not have done this to somebody else. So what we're going to do, if you want to, we can sue them. He said, you're not going to get rich. You'll get a few thousand dollars, but it will send a message to them that what they did was wrong. And they will think twice before they do it to someone else. And I said, I'm I want to do that. I'm down to do that. I don't really care if they give me a dollar, but I don't think what they did to me was right. So that's what happened. I fought them for like three years. And my my attorney just kept saying, just give her a few thousand dollars to go away. You know what I mean? Like this is really just about the principle of it and you guys being responsible for what you did. They just refused. They said it was not their fault that they called the police and it's up to the police if they want to arrest someone or not. And my lawyer's like, well. The police wouldn't have been there if you hadn't called them. So somebody's got to take responsibility and that person is going to be y'all. And you guys did not even follow your own procedure because your own manual, training manual says that you have to go through this, this, and this check before you can call the police to the scene and say, accuse someone of stealing something. And you guys did not follow those, uh, those guidelines in your own rules. So that ended in a, at the end of that three-year time frame we did go to civil court and the, the jury found in my favor that they were guilty of uh, false imprisonment. So that's how I was initiated at 19 to the idea that sometimes you do have to stand up for yourself. You do have to do things that are hard. You do have to push through adversity. You do have to lift your voice and say no. Sometimes it's someone's trying to make you do something that you know is not right or that isn't true or isn't fair. This reminds me of John Lewis, how he said, if you see something, say something, do something. And that was pretty much in that moment, the idea that I wasn't just going to sit there and allow them to mischaracterize, accuse me of doing something that I know I didn't do. And that was um, definitely when I saw your story on LinkedIn and I reached out to you and uh, even just hearing you recount it now, there were things that you said to me just now that we didn't even touch on uh, when I interviewed you the first time. Um, and so just hearing it again, I'm just thinking, really, we did all of this for a pack of batteries that they wouldn't have been able to prove you stole. I mean, <laughs> you know, like 
Mm-hmm. And you, nobody saw it. It's not on video. No. And nope. um, I know that after you posted it and we t- did talk about how it made you feel and the fact that you held some shame for years, right? As though you had done something wrong, even though you hadn't, and you had never really publicly until that moment voiced your your story or, or told your story. Isn't that right? Yeah. And I'm so glad you actually reminded me about that because there was that. There was that idea that, you know, as us growing up in the Black community, like getting arrested or even having interaction with the police as we see as, of what's happening in the news right now, it's always like there's a lot of like fear around that, the idea that you can get pulled over by the police. Because we know that a lot of times we're stopped more often, you know, we, we're getting, you know, arrested more often. Those are things that we know from the time we're probably able to comprehend our place in the world. So we always get the talk of what to do. Don't reach into your glove compartment. Don't make any sudden moves. Like every child gets to talk as soon as you start driving. So, and that goes for both little young black men and women. Cause I know I got the talk from my dad. Like if the police pull you over, make sure you keep your hands on the wheel, things of that nature that we know we have to be careful about. So for me, the shame was the idea that I've been told all those things. I had not been, you know, doing the things that the older people say that you do that gets you in trouble, being in the street, you know, hanging out, doing things that obviously are going to cause you because they'll say, well, if you was in the house, that wouldn't happen. That's some of the things that we heard when George Floyd was murdered. It's like the idea of, well, where were you? Not who the person that hurt you, but more like, why were you in that place? So we already know that's a part of it. So there was this idea that I was in college, I was pursuing education, I was supposed to be doing the right thing, and now I have a criminal record. Now I've been arrested. Even at one point, there were a lot of people that said, well, you know, how come you didn't just expunge your record? And, and I think that's another misconception. In the state of Florida, we you're, there's only one opportunity to do an expungement. And when I talked to my lawyer about it, he said, well, here's what I think you should do because I immediately wanted to expunge my record. He said, in this state, you can only do that one time. They only give you one opportunity. You're only 19. And he's like, if this could happen to you now, he's like, I, my fear of you expunging would be if something more serious happens later where you get targeted or something happens beyond your control, you won't have that at this young age to make a decision like that could affect, it could affect the rest of your life. He's like, it got dropped you were arrested, but the presumption would be, especially since a charge was a misdemeanor, that probably you didn't do it. There's really no way to control someone finding out that you got arrested per se. So his his advice to me was not to expunge. So I just didn't tell people. I only would tell people if I was applying for a job and I knew they had to do a background check, I would kind of just be like, well, does an arrest exclude me from you know whatever? And just make sure that it was either known or just kind of find out like what their policy was and what were things that could exclude you. But as far as people that I knew, like my friends, my family, like no one in my family, um, extended family knew, no one in my high school knew, nobody that I went to college with knew. The only people that really knew were my roommate and like my mom and dad, because I just felt like it's an embarrassment to my family. Even though I know I didn't do anything, everybody else doesn't know. Everyone else is going to think I'm a thief. Everyone else is going to think, you know, if I go to a job and tell them, oh, I have a arrest for petty theft, they might think I'm going to steal 
staplers, steal right. copy paper or something. <laughs> like I can't. And I think I'm like a, you know, like I steal paper clips. I don't want people to think that I be stealing. <laughs> and it's it's, it's not funny, the paper but clips, it's just like yeah, not the paper clip or push pins. I don't know, you know. It's like you feel, and it's a shit. And then the shame of it was it was only like two dollars and forty nine. So I'm like. But two dollars and forty nine cents. Like I wouldn't even if I was even a thief, I'm not gonna steal something. Girl, some batteries. Yeah, it was a battery. I'm gonna aim a little higher than batteries. Yeah, just aim a little bit higher than that. (laughs) If if I was a thief, it's like am I that much of a bad thief? I got caught stealing the battery. Just all the 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 just how silly it was and how ludicrous it was. It made me very ashamed and very embarrassed. So even when the story came out, it was a lot of people that even went to college with me that reached out and they were like, what? Like, this was their first time hearing this. They were like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, this happened to me when I was 19, I'm fine. So people were definitely in shock, but the shame and the embarrassment was, it's like, I think with anything else, especially for black folk, we are representing the community. We're representing the people that, taught us in high school represented our parents and there is a sense of and then you're gonna go get arrested like you right. know what i mean and like for you, know, you went to college that, for batteries right. yeah. And like, yeah that makes no sense so i think there was a lot of that that i carried around with me and it probably did change the way that i even acted because i feel, feel like i went through college the last two years of college just in a daze because i was just like what happened you know this was so like unexpected it was really a blow to my confidence my self-esteem to my safe psychological safety I just didn't even want to like even be in Gainesville anymore at that point because it just felt like the whole experience was ruined for me as a college student so yeah that shame and embarrassment definitely was there and I carry that through adulthood I really didn't post about it until I posted on LinkedIn or even talk about it and the only reason I did that was because of the Kyle Rittenhouse thing and just feeling like you have a 17-year-old who, when we think about Tamir Rice or we think about Emmett Till or we think about Trayvon Martin, those are young men that were killed. And it's like, well, this is not a young man. This is not a boy. This is a grown man, you know, And they, but they were children. So the idea that you have a 17-year-old and everyone's like, well, he's just a kid, you know, kids make mistakes. And I'm like, well, I was a kid too. And I wasn't allowed a mistake because I was only 19. I mean, I was not that much older and hearing just people just, you know, rallying behind, you know, a young person. And I don't think, I think when people hear black folks saying stuff like that, they're like, well, do you want that person to be? No, we don't. We want everyone to be treated fairly. So if that person has reasonable doubt or that person is innocent before proven guilty, then our children need to be innocent before proven guilty too. There has to be the same standard for everyone. So if we're not going to have any reasonable doubt, then nobody should. Yeah, absolutely. But if that person has it, then we should have it too. And I think sometimes there's a sense of, oh, you guys want special treatment. No, we want the special treatment you have. We want the same treatment and that special treatment because for us, we're not getting the treatment we're supposed to. And then it's kind of like, well, what are you complaining about? We're complaining because we're not treated the same. And that's really why I talked about being arrested because all the demonizing and victim blaming that I saw with George Floyd and saying, why didn't he do this? Or he should have did that. And even this whole idea of fight or flight and complying, even we're seeing it now with Tyree Nichols, there is a, a huge amount of restraint that is needed to not run from the police. And this is someone that has been in that situation. Cause my mom asked me that too. She said, why didn't you just sign? And then another thing she asked me is when they brought you outside cause they didn't handcuff me in the store cause they didn't want to make a scene. They waited till we got outside in the parking lot in the back. 
And she said, didn't you want to run? And I'm like, yeah, I wanted to run. If I thought I could have ran and got away from them, I would have run because the body goes into such a fight or flight mode when you know that you haven't done anything wrong, which is why a lot of times we see those police videos and the person's like, what did I do wrong? Because if you know you didn't do anything wrong, if you did something wrong, you're probably going to just be like, okay, I got caught. When someone didn't do anything wrong, they know they're getting stopped, apprehended, arrested, put in a police car, your body literally goes into shock. And I think for some people, when they're looking at that person, like, oh, well, they should just lay down and comply. You don't understand how it feels to have handcuffs clamped on you and someone basically take your freedom and your ability to do anything. And now you are a prisoner and you know that you didn't deserve or you don't deserve that and you don't know what is going to happen to you. So I think for me, that importance of making sure people understand that and understood that was so much more important than me covering up my shame which was literally what it was. It's like, I don't want people to think I'm a bad person. But in the meantime, you have someone that just was killed in front of our faces. You have someone else walking around with an AR-15 that they're being clapped and applauded like a hero. And I felt like I had to throw my story in there and give another, just another side to what happens when people are wrongfully accused and racially profiled. Absolutely. And and I know, you know, you talk a lot about um, how that impacted you into adulthood. I mean, it's interesting because you also talk about um, other things that you have had to deal with as a Black woman and how it has also impacted you into adulthood. Um, and you talk about that in your book, which is um, why I wanted to have you on today. First of all, after your story, you like blew up on LinkedIn, like <laughs> <laughs> on LinkedIn, right? And uh, the number of people following you increased. And then one day, because I follow you on LinkedIn, girl, I follow you. And then one day I'm following you on LinkedIn and I hear people or I see people holding up, you know, like they're tagging you and there's this book. And the, the title is I'm Not Yelling. And immediately when I saw the title, I thought, oh, sis, yes, sir, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, indeed. Um, and I've started, I'd started reading it and I thought, you know what, I want to ask her to come on again and talk about how she made that a transition were you already working on the book or was it the power of how you saw your words and speaking out was impacting others that you know gave you that push you needed to go to the next level and to decide to write the book how did that come about that's a really good question I was not writing the book I didn't even think I could write a book <laughs> so I was not writing the book I didn't start writing the book until the end of 2021 beginning of 2022 so I did not start writing the book until well into my journey on LinkedIn because I started posting in 2020 right after George Floyd was killed. So it was really probably a year and a half later that I actually started writing the book and finished it up like over last summer, toward the end of last summer, beginning of uh, fall. And I think it was the fact that people did start to, a lot of the things that I was posting about, a lot of things that I was saying, a lot of the things that I was encountering as a Black woman. And that's, I'm glad that you asked that because it really was this idea that when I started to think about it, I'm like, where did I get this idea of pushing my voice out there and talking about social justice? I never wanted to talk about social justice. I never thought that was something that I would be doing. But what had happened was during the whole pandemic and sheltering in place and George Floyd's murder, I started to feel like an overwhelming sense of responsibility as an educator, first and foremost, 
about why people were so confused about Black history. I teach American literature and I always think about stories and how stories typically shape the way we see the world. We see this in social media, we see it on the news, we see it in anything that we consume. A lot of times movies, um, TV shows, a lot of it, our perception of the world around us is the stories that we consume, the stories that we tell and the stories that we hear. And, and a lot of that I think is not accurate. And I think as a black woman starting to talk to other black women, starting to interview black women, cause I started a podcast as well and different things that panel discussions and different things where I was interacting with other women that had a similar presence and that were using their voices to advocate in all the different areas that they were, whatever industry. I started to feel as though we all had similar experiences. We had been successful, but we still felt like we couldn't be our true authentic selves. A lot of us were wrestling with this question of, well, what is the best way to get to the next level and mentorship and code switching and natural hair and microaggressions, which a lot of us felt like it didn't really even properly explain or really define what we were going through when we were going into these corporate spaces, leadership roles, not really getting paid what we were supposed to, not understanding our real worth, not understanding how to negotiate. Hence, therefore, the, the, the role of a mentor not having that, not having a mentor that looked like us, not understanding that another big thing that came out as a result of the book was this idea that a lot of people were saying they had imposter syndrome, including me, and then starting to think about, well, is it really syndrome or is it imposter treatment, which is what I called chapter four in the book, which was this idea that a lot of times we're going into these spaces and it's like, oh, I have imposter treatment. Oh, I don't feel that confident. Oh, you know, people are looking at me and I, I want to make sure that I know what I'm talking about and I feel a little bit hesitant, but where was that coming from? And for most of us, we didn't feel any of that when we were in our own communities, in the Black community where a lot of us have grown up or just amongst our family, amongst people that supported and nurtured us, we always actually felt very confident. And it wasn't until we started to go into spaces that didn't look like us that we started to feel inadequate, that we were being treated as though we had to validate our purpose or validate our experience or validate our education. So I think that was a big part of why I decided to write the book at the end of 2021 was, I was, was approached by a publisher and it was like, well, should you write about black history? That's kind of like your wheelhouse or, you know, are there other topics? And I said, you know, black women's empowerment has become top of mind for me because there's so much talk about black women burning out, black women leaving the workplace, black women being more heavily affected due to COVID, black women being affected due to unemployment rates, black women being frontline workers and all of the, the, the hazards of that, maternal uh, mortality rates, infant mortality rates, uh, healthcare, all these things that started to be discussions around the pandemic and, and the effects of COVID. And then me really thinking, I need to address some of these things and figure out why this is happening. I just, I'm always a curious person. I'm always thinking about why things happen, especially being an immigrant. I'm always looking at things through the lens of someone that's not even from here since I was born in London. And, and raised in the UK and come here until I was 12, I think I'm always looking at everything with a skeptic's eye. I'm always like, why is that happening? Because that doesn't make sense. So let me try to see if someone has studied this before. Let me look at the historical background of why this has been this, and then try to figure out what's happening in the present. People must have studied this. So I look at studies, look at research, look at stats to figure out why this is happening. And then what do we do about it moving forward? And that's literally what I did with every topic, whether it was about 
women were telling me they didn't feel they could be their authentic selves. Well, who is your authentic self? Let's think about who that is and why that has not been accepted in society. Why do you feel like people are saying you're yelling? Why is it that your voice intimidates people or you're saying that you're not yelling at all, but everyone is saying that you are angry? Where does that angry black woman trope come from? Historically, how has that been leveraged against us in the present? And what is something we can do? And I always think about, it's not even necessary changing spaces. And it's definitely not, oh, we'll just let it roll off your back because both of those are not, I don't think really good advice in either, um, either way, but really more like now I know why this is happening. It's almost like if someone's telling a lie about you, it's like, it's frustrating and it's like you get upset, but I feel like, especially if my kids are saying, oh, so-and-so said something about me. It's like, it just ignore so-and-so, you know what I mean? If you know, it's not true then you don't have to internalize that. And I think that's what black women have done. We have tended to internalize things that we know are not true. It's like, I know I'm not yelling. That's why I said I'm not yelling is the title of the book. I'm not, but when someone's constantly saying that you're yelling, it's like, you do start to second guess yourself. It's like that kid that's running home to the mom, like, uh, you know, they're picking at me. And it's just like, if someone says something 10 times, it does become difficult. We tell kids like sticks and stones will hurt or will hurt your bones, but words can never hurt you, but words do hurt. Yeah, it would be almost, we have to acknowledge that it is hurtful. So we have to acknowledge within ourselves why these things are happening. Cause I think it's important to understand the context of why it's happening. It's not coming from nowhere. And a lot of it is very intentional. So knowing that, oh, it's not just you being sensitive. It's not you being paranoid. It's not you making up stuff. It's definitely happening. But now what do you do? And I think that has been the missing component. We're going into DEI saying, you guys need to acknowledge this and you need to change. And they haven't even gotten to acknowledge yet. They haven't even gotten to like our past unconscious, like, oh, well, I don't even know that I'm doing this. So waiting for DEI to make change in these spaces so they can be safe for us, I don't think is a viable option for most of us that are exiting the workplace in record numbers that we know this happening with the glass ceiling and the glass cliff and all these different metaphors that are just being used to say, actually, we're sick of y'all shit and we don't want this for ourselves. And that's basically what they should make an article about rather than calling it the glass ceiling and the glass cliff. I just looked at this uh, clip from a speech that Angela Davis did. And one of the things uh, she talked about in her speech, I think it was for Women's History Month a few a few years ago, is even the idea of talking about a glass ceiling is a little bit offensive for Black women because we're not even, that supposes that we're even close to the ceiling that we can even just punch our way through it. And in the speech, she said, you know, Black women, we're not even at the ceiling. We're nowhere near there. So it's not even like we could smash through the ceiling because in order to smash through the ceiling, you would have to have access to it. And that's a privilege that we don't have. So having those types of conversation, I think is really for us, our key to healing. Our key to healing is not going to be these spaces are going to change because they're talking about glass ceiling and glass cliff. Like this is like a, you know, a Cinderella movie or some kind of like mythical thing. And it's like, this is our well-being. We're talking about mental health outcomes. We're talking about stress and anxiety, depression. We're talking about women that are leaving the workplace because they feel like they can't survive. And then people just like, what is your problem? You need to be happy that you even got promoted. You need to even be happy that you have a job. You need. So we're literally in this push and pull of feeling the guilt because we have attained everything that we were supposed to. 
but then looking at the environment itself and there's not one thing we can say like this even in the book i say this no one's burning a cross on your desk so it becomes almost like the ultimate gaslight because people are like well what happened and you're you can't really articulate anything other than people act like you're not supposed to be there people are talking over you people are interrupting you you're getting all these assignments on your on your calendar or on your your agenda that you know it's really not conducive because you're setting you up for for it's not setting you up for success but you feel obligated to do it because you have to show that you can handle it and you have to take on assignments that you know are pushing you beyond your capacity because you have to prove yourself so there's all these un you know unhealthy behaviors toxic behaviors that are happening and we basically are victim a fall victim to really the trope, which is the the aggressive, angry black woman, the mule that uh, we were that Zora Neale Hurston said, where we have to take everything on our back, and nobody even says thank you, or nobody even pays us what we're supposed to earn, or nobody's promoting us. So those were some of the the questions that I had, and those were some of the things that I really wanted to delve into the research about that. Why is this happening? What are some of the things that we can do to protect ourselves in these spaces? We're not going to say the spaces are going to change tomorrow. So until that happens, if we can at least know, okay, that kid that's saying that you're whatever, picking at you is what our mom would say, that kid probably, you know, they, they might have their own problems. So just ignore that kid. You know what you're doing and you know why you're here. And I think that's really where we're able to go into spaces and just say, okay, that behavior has nothing to do with me. That behavior is reflective of that person. That person's insecurity. I know who I am. I know what I'm here to do. I am going to do what I need to do. And then if that place becomes so toxic that it's not the right place for you anymore, in the last chapter, I talk about the idea of pulling a, pulling a seat up to the table. And, and that's what Shirley Chisholm said. If they don't let you, if they don't give you a seat at the table, pull up a folding chair. But for some of us, we don't want a folding chair. We don't want to be there at all. So what does that look like? If you want to build your own empire, your own table, thinking about ways that you can be supported in doing that as well. So that was really why I decided to write the book. And what about the title? Because when I saw the title, immediately, it, it's almost like therapy. No, no, lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not even a lie. It, uh, there were so many instances that I could think of where I was either being accused of yelling or I was, uh, you're aggressive or, you know, the, the one that come that came to mind, um, the quickest was, you know, it happened um, a few months back, you know, um, I do the podcast and my side hustle is great, but I got a day job. And I, you know, a, a coworker called herself, quote unquote, telling on me, right, about something, I guess she didn't like that I did. She went to her supervisor who went to somebody who wasn't even in my chain of command to complain. And, you know, I called her on it. I said, were you upset by the, I said, I, I guess there was an issue. Well, I don't want to argue with you. I said, oh gosh, I wasn't aware we were arguing. I thought this was just a conversation. Can you tell me what we need to do so it's a discussion and not an argument? I mean, she immediately went to the, I don't, I don't want to argue with you. And I'm thinking, for real? So the problem, really, I, you know, what I interpreted, what she's really saying is, oh snap, I didn't expect you to actually call me on my on my junk, right? I, I expected to be able to low-key call myself telling on you and you were just going to tuck with your tail between your legs and just let me you know, have my moment. And I'm like, no, sis, we're going to have an adult conversation because if you had had the decency to let me know you were that upset, I would have at least, bam, told you who my supervisor was, baby. So if you wanted to go further, you could go to the right person. <laughs> like the person y'all went to, 
I, I don't, I don't even report to them. Like what, but her immediate reaction was that I was arguing with her. Um, and so I'm wondering why that title, because girl, I'm telling you immediately, there were five or six instances without breaking a sweat that I thought of when I read the title of the book. Yeah. Cause I had a very similar incident where I was in a, a leadership meeting with myself, a coworker who was also black and on a, this is before the days of Zoom. So we were on a conference call and there was a white woman in similar situation where, oh, you know, I see you're getting excited. I see you getting upset. And I'm talking in this tone. I'm just saying, these are things we need to do. We need to figure out this. We need to figure out that. Let's come up with a strategy. And immediately, like I shut down immediately, like, oh, you're angry, you're upset. And I think that in that moment, I did the same thing. I'm like, well, let's not say that because I'm not, I'm using my same tone of voice. And, and I think a lot of times people don't like to get called on the carpet. They want to really perpetuate this stereotype. And we know that the angry black woman stereotype is real. The Jezebel is real. You know, some of these stereotypes that are create this misogynoir where black women Kimberly Crenshaw talks about this, this idea of intersectionality for Black women. We have this unique intersectionality of womanhood and our Blackness. And there tends to be, for us, it's like a double jeopardy. You know, it's like we have both of them. And these stereotypes that have been perpetuated have been used to control us because if you're trying to break down the Black family, you can emasculate the men and not allow them to be hired. They don't qualify for GI Bill, even if they fight for the country. If they're in the household, you don't qualify for welfare. So even if they're not working because they can't get a job because it was segregation. And then that's perpetuated because if you think about a family after segregation, is their, is their, are their children and their grandchildren really going to be set up for success if they don't have the proper resources? It becomes harder and harder each generation to, to dig yourself out of that cycle of poverty. And for those that have done it, then you become weaponized against your community. If Liz can do it, then it can be done. If Oprah can do it, if there's always something that's used to counteract the fact that we're coming out of 150 years ago, not even, or in 250 years of slavery, 150 years of segregation. And then there's this idea that, so why can't you pull it together? Other people are able to do overcome these odds. And for some reason, if you can't, then you must be defective. So the black woman trope of you yell, you're aggressive, you're angry, has been used to weaponize black women really to put us in our place. It's almost like that's the opposite of what a woman should be. If you think about a stereotype, a stereotype is like an exaggeration or something that's used against something else to say, to, to build that direct contrast. So if womanhood is gentle, pure, sexually chaste, someone needs to be protected, you have to create a counter to that for black women because black women don't deserve protection. Black women can be lynched, killed, and that was what it was. There were just almost just as many black women as black men that were lynched during a time of reconstruction, after reconstruction up through the, uh, the 1955 or the, the last documented or so um, lynching with Emmett Till being one of the last documented ones. So this went on for, you know, so many years, decades of women being abused, raped, whatever you could think of you were up for grabs. So it would make sense to make it like, well, this person is 
out of control. This person is angry. This person is aggressive. This person is a brute. This person is like a man. They emasculated the men and then made the woman like a man, took the man out of the household and let us raise the children by ourselves. So now if you abuse this person, you didn't abuse a woman, you abused a man. So it's all the better for them to not feel anything towards you, not even feel that you're a woman, which is why we see a lot of that act out in corporate spaces where you'll find they'll get aggressive with you, but a, a white woman will say the exact same thing and they won't do that with her because it's almost as if they've created a dichotomy where you are not really a woman, you're a black woman and they won't probably admit it to themselves, but I've seen situations where I'm saying the exact same thing as somebody else, it's the exact same tone and the person was actually saying it louder than me and I was corrected and told to be quiet and the other person wasn't. And I'm like, this is in real time. My who's also a black woman, literally sent me a message and said, do you see this? And I'm like, yeah, I'm here. I'm the one that's being told to be quiet and the other person is louder than me. So it lets you know that their perception of us when they're saying angry black woman really is, uh, is giving them free reign to control because it's like, well, you're angry. You're out of control. I have to put you in your place. You're uppity. And that has that trope has been used to create a narrative, even though with the most educated demographically. We get the most bachelor's degrees. We get the most master's degrees. We get doctorates. Some of us have multiple degrees. We have experience. We have done everything, been there, done that, but still we're not getting appropriately paid, promoted, and awarded for the things that we have done. So that's why I said, I'm not yelling. I'm not yelling is literally this thought in my head. I saw it with Katanji Brown-Jackson, this idea that we almost have to curtail our voices because they're constantly thinking that we're yelling. They're constantly thinking that we're being uh, outrageous. They're constantly thinking that we're being over the top when we're really just softly, regular tone talking. So I wanted to make sure that in the book, using the title, I created this kind of like solidarity with other Black women with this idea that we're all going through this. We've all been told that we're too aggressive, our tone is too loud, we're speaking too forcefully, and we know that this is just who we are and we're just speaking our truth. Absolutely, and you know, I have found myself in one of the things that I really found interesting in the book is when you talked about how you realized that for some time uh, in corporate spaces, you didn't speak up because of that. Or like I find myself purposely having to lower my voice when I'm speaking, because I know that any minute now I'm going to get the, oh, well, you're getting angry, you know, and that's their, like you said, that's their way of being able to say, well, we're just going to have to cut this conversation off now because you're getting angry and emotional when mm -hmm. that's, that's truly not what's happening here. It's just that you don't want to deal with the words mm -hmm. that are coming out of my mouth, quite frankly. Um, mm -hmm. But what process did you have to go through as you realized that you know, you were code switching and you were, you know, what was it? What's your middle name? You said your husband said Angela. That, uh, have you given yeah. him the Angela voice, right? Have you had the Angela yeah. voice? Yeah, Angela <laughs> has, has been fired. No more Angela. <laughs> no more and Angela. I think, and that was, I think that realization hit me with George Floyd. Seeing that, okay, you have someone that's literally walking along. Were they the perfect person? None of us are. But for people to now, you know, start bringing up things from the person's past, talking about 
this that happened, that that happened, how they were, what they should have done, what they shouldn't have. Just really getting into a minutia when we literally just watch somebody killed in cold blood in front of us. I started to feel like I've been arrested too. I could have been him. Like it's not too much of a stretch because he really wasn't arrested for anything other than passing a bad $20 bill. And I'm from South Florida where where this is like the home of the bad $20 bill. So it's, it happens to almost everybody. I don't think anyone has never not passed one or hasn't seen one. So we know that they're out there. But then to say, well, if someone did that, well, maybe that they wouldn't have even had an encounter with the police and this none of this conversation would have happened. It made me start to feel as though it doesn't really matter what I do. Because a lot of us, when we're code switching and, you know, trying to do all these different things to assimilate. And I think that's the part of what's so harmful about the idea that people don't see color or that even race is a construct. Because race is a construct, when someone says they don't see color, it's erasing our identity. Our, we are this, we are brown. And our ethnicity has been something that we've had to have an agnostic ethnicity where everybody else is like, oh, I'm from Venezuela. Oh, I'm from Germany. Oh, I'm from here. Oh, I'm from there. We are black. So, and they are white. And both of those things don't have ethnicity. Both of those things are colors. So we know that that can't be real. We know that that's not true, but we've had to create this assimilation of, well, our blackness is not something that people really relate to. They don't really like it. They're kind of afraid of it. Even James Baldwin said that, you know, when white people are looking at you, they're, they're sick. they seem curious, but a little bit afraid because they don't know what is beneath there, what's beneath that face. And he said, they know what they did, but they don't want us to acknowledge it. So what happens is when we think about our experience, the, the idea of the mask, right? Paul Lawrence Dunbar, this idea we wear the mask and Maya Angelou also, Re remix that the idea that we're wearing a mask that smiles but underneath a lot of times we are angry irritated you know frustrated because this is not us we're forcing ourselves to be an assimilated character this Angela that we think is going to be more palatable but it, and it still won't be because regardless of me being Angela, I was Angela and I still got arrested right so I started to just think about this idea that well then what's the point of doing that? If code switching and being this inauthentic version of myself, and, and W.B. Du Bois talks about this whole idea of double consciousness, that we have our real self and then we have the self that we present to the world around us. So we're curiously always looking at ourselves through the lens of other people that are watching us and what would they want to see. That's super dysfunctional. And the fact that they're in total, like, oblivious and think, well, in order for you to dysfunction you should just not have color but that default is a reflection of them it almost feels like an abusive parent relationship you know this idea that I'm not going to acknowledge your pain you just need to suck that pain up because that pain doesn't exist like I didn't hurt you at all and if I did you needed it you know and that's like literally the key hallmark of abuse when someone's telling you I didn't abuse you and you're like but you did these are the things that you did to me and you're like so stop dwelling in the past. Now you're being abusive because you won't let me like just move forward. It literally sounds like what an abusive person would say to someone that's suffering abuse. Like, I don't want to acknowledge it. Us talking about it is making it worse. So can we just move forward? And it's like, well, I can't reconcile because you haven't even acknowledged what you did to me. And that's what we have to do when we're going to spaces. We're literally covering up 
who our real self is. And that real self, we take them to church. We take them to our parents' house. We take them to our kids' school. We go around our people that we went to high school with. We, we go to functions in our community. There's nothing wrong with that real self. But for some reason, that real self has to be left in the parking lot or left at the door. And when we walk into our job, we become this caricature of what we think they want. And even that's not good enough. So I just said, you know what? I'm not doing any of that. Whoever I am, when I come into my house, that is the person that is going to get sent out wherever I go. There's no more Angela. There's no more any of that. Because I just felt like it was pointless. And especially being home, sheltering is in, in place and not having to do it. I felt so much lighter. I felt so much at ease. I felt like a mental drain that had been on me. It was almost like I was a different person. A lot of the anxiety, stress, total... 180 from how I was feeling when I was having to go into the office because all that effort that I was putting into doing that, I could put that into something else more creative or more just doing things that were more beneficial. So that was a part of, you know, this whole process is just kind of like deconstructing the idea of what professionalism is, deconstructing this the viability of code switching. And I do have some people that say, well, you know, it's not really code switching for me. I grew up in the burbs, wonderful for you. So then don't do it, like do whatever feels natural. But for those of us that do feel like, you know what, doing this is exhausting. I wanted to create space where it's like, then don't, don't do anything. If it's not against your company policy and even some things that are company policy are illegal because natural hair, the Crown Act still hasn't been passed at a federal level and it could not pass the house recent, uh, the Senate recently, even though it passed the House, and it's only been passed in like 18 states. So even that is just an affront to us as people when we're thinking about the idea that someone won't say, you know what, people are being discriminated against for their natural hairstyles, whether it's locks, whether it's an Afro, whether it's braids. We need to make sure that that is something that doesn't happen. People just don't even see why that is something that's needed. So it, it lets you see that it's really not you, you're not making this up. This is something that as a society as a whole, there is an extreme cognitive dissonance with the majority of those that are actually walking amongst us in this country. And I just started to feel like whether they want to accept it or not, I have to accept myself because I have to live without stress and without anxiety. And I can't concern myself with what they think because what they think is actually going to lead me to high blood pressure, hypertension, heart disease, stress, anxiety, an early death while they're trying to figure it out with a reading list of things that then when you give them the reading list, they're like, none of this applies because I don't see colors. <laughs> You're back to square one. So I just said, forget it. I have to be, I, I, I think I've learned this at a young age. It's like, I can only control myself. I can't control other people's reaction to me. I can't control other people's behavior. I can try to educate people and I've done that my whole career. But at the end of the day, I just tell my students, I got my education. And I start to feel like that in corporate America. It's like, you could either like it or lump it. I'm going to be me because taking all this time and all this effort to try to be somebody else that still, when I do all this, I'm still getting overlooked for promotion. You still hired your nephew and that person's in the corner office. I'm still in the cube. So what was the point of me doing all this? It just started to seem really, you know, just, just, like a fool's errand to do these things that weren't being productive and they really were just hurting me in the long run. And I can definitely really, I call it my representative. I'm like, I'm a, I send my representative to work every day. Yeah. 
That's yeah. what I call it. A lot of people do. A lot yeah. of people do call it their representative. <laughs> yeah. And that's it is funny that as black folk, if you say, "Oh, I'm sending my representative," we'll be like, "Oh, we all know exactly what you're talking about." And that's why I always say it's not us because if we none of us know each other, and when you said you send your representative, I know exactly what you're talking about because a lot of us call it our representative. I just happen to name mine, but we all know there's a representative. Dave Chappelle said it. He said all black folk are bilingual. We speak regular and then we speak job interview we all laugh because we knew what he was talking about we're not going to laugh if it's not something that's universal so those are some of the things that the harmful behaviors where we're doing things and we just think well this is just a black tap this is just what i have to do and it's just like no i'm not doing that anymore you know and i just that's just i just stopped i was just like i'm not going to be an alternate version of myself and if someone doesn't accept this version of me that i give to my family that I give to people I've grown up with that I give to if I go to do a community service you know project with my sorority whatever it is that's the person that I bring and there's nothing wrong with that person if they don't want to accept that and they feel like that's unprofessional I probably don't want to work there anyway so it's better for me to show that and if it's something that is not a culture fit quote unquote then maybe I just need to start looking for another job because I'm not gonna be a different person in order to earn a paycheck and then not be able to spend that paycheck because I, I die an early death from stress. That seems a little bit silly and counterproductive. Right. I, I, um, it's just so interesting to hear you talk about it when your husband's like, um, have you, have you had him talk to Angela? <laughs> yeah. Angela, can you, can you get Angela on there and have Angela get that payment extension? Yeah. And it's just like, no, it's no more Angela, because it's, it's, it's a sense that We've spent a lot of time deluding ourselves into if I just do this, 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 and this, then. And I feel like that's another thing with abuse as well. A lot of this, I'm looking at it through the lens of, from a psychological perspective, is this healthy for me or not? Not what's healthy for me to get a raise, not healthy for the job, not having loyalty. We see across the country. I just saw something, uh, who's laying off people? I want to say PayPal. PayPal is laying off people. Google's laid off people. Amazon's laid off people. Meta has laid off people. And then people, sometimes they got to a job or just logged into email probably from home. And it's like, you don't have access anymore after 20 years, whatever the case may be. A job does not care nothing about you as an individual. Their job is to keep the lights on, be productive, get the most output. And I think for us, what we've done is bought into the idea of that we are an integral part of that and we're replaceable, just like a cog in a wheel, just like a system. That's why when people were shocked that it was black men, young black men at that, that were the instigators of this brutal beating of Tyree Nichols, I'm, none of, I don't think anybody in the black community was shocked. I mean, we were horrified, obviously, and it's disgusting and disgraceful and, and a shame. But is it shocking that a black police person, a black policeman, officer, EMT, EMTs, I even feel like I was shocked by that because you're there to preserve life. But thinking about a police officer that they're roaming the street in a gang unit, undercover unit called Scorpion, and is it shocking that black men were involved in beating someone? No, because you're if you're a cog in a wheel of a system, you could take any cog out and put another cog that's the same size in there. It doesn't matter what color the cog is. The cog is going to just keep moving the wheel and moving that whole system of wheels because that's what it would have to do. I mean, unless you take it out of there. And if you take it out of there, once it's probably corroded, which is happening with the police force, is that some of these people don't need to even be in positions of power. 
So you're always going to have people that uphold, I think, bad behavior. You're always going to have people that are tools of the system. And I think for a lot of Black women, you know, we get discouraged because we see other Black women that are, you know, I write about in the book that are not supportive or we don't feel like we're nurtured or we don't feel like we belong in these systems. And toward the end of the book, I'm like, probably we don't. Some of them, we don't belong there. And that's where we have to have discernment where it's not always about a paycheck. And I think a lot of the time when I see a lot of books and a lot of these like, you know, pundits that are out there, it's like hustle, hustle, grind, grind, get it, get it. And I think that's important, obviously, for the Black community, especially because of the fact that we need wealth. We need to try to narrow that gap. That, that, that gap cannot be narrowed in our lifetime. So that is in itself, like, trying to let us know that just all this hustling to try to get to that next gold coin that's being like, kind of held in front of our face, what is that really going to do? And for me, I feel as though we have to really start looking internally and strengthening ourselves internally. Because if we don't, how are we going to deal with, you know, the shock of some of these that we have to encounter? I feel like after last weekend and everything, seeing everything's happening with another bout of just horror across the country from police brutality, if we're not strong internally, it's like we're going to be destroyed as a community. And I think that's a part of why the book was important for me. It was more like, well, how do I strengthen myself? Because I don't see enough movement on this DEI front. And I started to feel that way toward the end of 2021. It's like, okay, 2020 happened. We're all the way through 2021. I don't see enough change or change that really would actually make a dent in what needs to happen in this country. So that was, I think, a lot of why I started to say the code switching and all the things that we're doing to try to attain some level of, oh, this is how you're able to get that promotion or that brass ring or whatever it is you're looking for. That really isn't it. We need to turn inward and focus on our own well-being, our mental health, who we are at our core and pull from that. There's something so strong and resilient about Black culture our African roots, everything that we are, we're not even supposed to be here. And if you think about the fact that we were considered not even human 150 years ago, we're actually superhuman because we weren't even allowed to read. And if you think about if we were supposedly this subhuman species that were considered animals and we were not even allowed to marry, do anything, keep our own children, do anything, raise our own children. We literally were considered like a mule or a horse up until 1865. It's not that long ago, you know? It's not like dinosaurs roamed the earth in 1865. Right. So that isn't like, oh my God, that was, when people say, oh, it was so long ago. No, because if you think about people's family, I know people that their parents were, my dad was born in 1942. So grandparents would have been born, right? Like 20 years before, 30 years before that. Uh, Great-grandparents would have been born 30 years before that. So when we're thinking about slavery, when people make it seem like it was a million years ago, it wasn't. I have people I went to high school with that their grandparents were sharecroppers, which would mean the previous generation would have been enslaved or the generation before that. I know people that, par- uh, that had people in their family that were lynched. So the idea is almost offensive to make it like, oh, this was so long ago, forget it. I've never heard anyone say, 
oh, if someone said they were, their family survived the Holocaust, oh, forget it, that was a long time ago. But for us, there's this arbitrary rule that says, oh, that was a long time ago, but people were being lynched up until the 1950s. People were, are still being lynched in the street and it's always for us, forget it. And I think that's a big part of why the code switching and our culture and being really stepping into who we really are, whatever that is. And for it's like we say in the diaspora, there isn't one way to be black and that's fine. But whatever way that is, we need to be that because people are constantly telling us, forget it. They're erasing it. They take it out of the history box. If it was, if it wasn't important then you wouldn't need to erase it. If it wasn't anything that was threatening or anything that was empowering, you know, my kids are doing, making little games and doing things. I don't tell them stop because I, it's not real. So there's nothing for me to tell them stop about. They're ripping up pieces of paper and making it into a cupcake, which they do stuff like that. Am I gonna say, don't do that because it's not real? Of course, I don't care because it doesn't bother me. It's not a real cupcake. So the idea of us not having our history or not being allowed to lean into who we really are because, oh, well, that's not important. That's why it's important because why are you so pressed if it's not important? There's a reason why history is important because it has to, it provides you context for today and it allows you to plan for the future. Maya Angelou said it best. If you, you can't know where you're going, unless you know where you came from. And they are literally asking us on faith. And James Baldwin said, you haven't, you haven't proven yourself worthy of my faith. You're asking me to trust you based on something you have never shown me. You've never shown me that you're trustworthy. So they're asking us, oh, forget that. We're going to build a new future but at the same time, oppressing us in the present. I just, I don't feel like that's a viable way to go forward. So that's why the code switching and everything else just had to go. Had to go. And it's so true what you say when you think about the way you put it. So my parents, you know, remember segregation when my, you know, there are still people walking this earth who remember down here where I live, there were two black high schools that you could go to. If you are black and you're, and you're older than about, you know, 60 or whatever in, in the area where I live in, in um, Tampa Bay, you know, the two schools that you went, you either went to Blake or Middleton, like, you know, that off the bat, there was already only two and they were still in segregation. So after slavery was then segregated, you know, we still have people who can remember that the colored fountain and the white fountain. So to say that, you know, you're so right when you put it into perspective that way, you can say it sounds like it was a long time ago, but there are still people living and breathing who were a part of segregation, who are a part of, there were two black high schools and only two black high schools. And that was where you were going to school point blank period. And so, um, it's so interesting when you put it in that perspective, when they want to say, oh, just let that go. You know, it was so long ago. Not when my parents can still tell stories when they say, oh, I think we went to high school together or you went with my wife because it wasn't but two. And, you know, one like it was so many to choose from. It was just those two. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's just really a great um, way to put it in perspective when people say to you, let it go. Um, so you write the book. And we were talking about this before I hit record and I was like, oh girl, you got to tell that story. So when you write the book and it's all done and now it's time to put it out there in the atmosphere. And how did that make you feel? Scared, <laughs> I was terrified. I was terrified. I think, especially because the book is so personal. I talked a lot about my own struggle and very vulnerable and transparent in how I felt about a lot of these issues, whether it was just my own personal story, finding my voice, the 
experiences I had with microaggressions or, you know, just thinking about natural hair and why natural hair is important for us from a, from a historical perspective and culturally what it has meant. We're thinking about all these different microaggression, imposter syndrome, everything that I talked about, it was from a personal perspective, as well as obviously speaking with women that had experienced it as well and, and doing the research, both historical and current uh, studies and stats and things like that. But I, I, did, I was scared that people wouldn't get it. You know, I was scared that people would feel like, oh, this is just a lot. And it's just, that's your experience, but don't like project. You know, I in my head, I was sharing with you before we started recording the night before, the book was released, I just remember having this horrible nightmare that people were leaving reviews on Amazon and saying the book made no sense whatsoever. It was just like a total, like they just didn't know what I was trying to accomplish with the book. Like everyone was just like one star. <laughs> and it was just like, I think I woke up like in a cold sweat. Like, Girl, you went all the way down yourself, bless your heart. I did. I was just like, people were in the dream. People were just like, what is this? This is like, this is gibberish. It doesn't make any sense. And when I woke up, I was literally in a cold sweat. I hopped up and I was just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I think when I first, uh, when I first hopped on Amazon, it, the, the book was ranked at 50,000. I was just like, okay, 50,000. That doesn't seem that good. And I talked to the publisher and I was like, uh, the book is at like around 50,000. And I remember them, the, the publisher, uh, the owner of the publishing company and some of the editors, they started laughing at me. They were like, you do realize there's like millions of books on Amazon, right? I was like, oh, so 50,000 is good. And now it's at 5,000. So it, it, I think for me, it's been very surreal. I am really honored and blessed and thankful and grateful that you know you've read it that people have it has resonated with people that people have picked it up that people are promoting it that people are understanding and relating to a lot of it and and it's also helping to reframe the way that people think which was really what it did for me i call it my love letter to black women but it was also a love letter to myself because there were a lot of things that i was struggling with as well that i really wanted to try to unpack and try to figure out why do I feel a lot of this stuff? And then once I knew that, it was incumbent on me to share it. I was just like, wait a second, this imposter syndrome thing, it doesn't make sense to me. And I had a conversation with a friend and he was like, I don't know why you always say that. And I'm like, I don't know why. Let me look into that and do some research and figure out why I'm saying that. Cause it, I, I really never really thought about it. And I think that's just a part of my curious nature. And then when it started to click where I'm like, you know what, it's not imposter syndrome. Maybe some people say they have it. I don't, I'm not going to say they don't, but I don't have that. Because for me, I was never feeling that until I went to UF. I always actually felt very superior and I always felt very intellectually, very like uh, dominant because I hadn't, no one ever questioned that I was smart. I was in always predominantly black environments in, and I was one of those children in South Florida that I went to the black high school. It was P19 before they changed it to Dillard High School. So also on the segregated side of town and very similar to Tampa, where if you went to either Dillard or Ely, everybody knew that that was the school, even though it wasn't segregated at the time when I went, it was during segregation. So this was a school that always had the best like football team. We were always very loud and outspoken. And our teachers really encouraged that. Our teachers really spoke life into us and, and encouraged us to be confident. So I don't think I ever went into any environment where I felt like I wasn't going to shine. So, and I wasn't going to know what I needed to do. And if I didn't know it, I would just learn it. And then I would 
smash that, you know, it was just like, you're just going to smash everything that you do. Everything you do, you come with excellence. And that's what our teachers always told us growing up, because we had teachers that looked like us and, and believed in us and told us so. So I think for us, a lot of the, the language that we're using toward each other and toward ourselves is just not accurate. And that was literally, you know, my thought process in, in writing the book. And I'm happy that people are connecting with these ideas because it represents a way for us to take control. We're not going to necessarily be able to go into a space and say, well, I'm a DEI practitioner, which I'm not. I can change this company or I can change, I can go to Congress and pass a law. But what I can do is I can control myself. And I think in the book, my goal was to provide like concrete strategies. So this is how you're looking at yourself. Here are some ways you can talk to yourself. Here are some things that you can do. It doesn't negate what you're going through. So it's not that I'm saying, oh, well, you can just get stronger and pull yourself up by your boots, overcome it, but understand what's happening so that you can be more effective and then you can make decisions rather than waiting for someone to save you or waiting for the environment to change, which we know more than likely that may not happen. And you may have to just create another environment that's better for you. Absolutely. And it has been getting rave reviews. I've been seeing the people who are talking about um, how wonderful the book is. And I am going to encourage our listeners to get a copy of it. So it's on Amazon, right? So they can purchase it there on amazon.com. And it's I'm Not Yelling, correct? By Elizabeth Liba. Yes, um, and I'm not I, yelling. Yes, and I encourage you to get that book and to really read it. Uh, it will be therapeutic. It is like therapy, I ain't gonna lie. Um, and uh, I know what you mean. Sometimes you write something for other people and it's also for you too. Uh, so get the book, guys, read it. Uh, hit us up and let us know what you think of it. Again, in the show notes, I'm going to link to our original interview and make sure that I put a link so that you can purchase the book by Elizabeth Liba. I'm not yelling. Girl, it has been an hour since we've been, it doesn't even seem like we've been talking. Long, right? I told you, it's like <laughs> we get to gather like two old friends. So. When, whenever we talk, it's like this. You're like my favorite person to talk to. You have no idea. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I love talking to you. I was like, when, like I said, when we first started, I was like, let me hit record child before we be on here 10 or 15 minutes. Which <laughs> is usually what would happen. Yeah. Started recording the episode. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that is all the time we have for today. I could talk to Elizabeth all day, y'all. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about on In My Shoes, you know what to do. Hit me up at KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. Again, that is KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. That's all the time for this episode. Until the next time. Be blessed.